0: Hello and welcome to today's Hemonc podcast. We're a global open access video channel bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. This podcast series will feature selected sessions from the fifth international workshop on acute leukemias, which is held in San Diego, California. In this session, you will hear from Andrew Wei and Sanam Lokhavi, who discuss the relevance of TP53 mutation in AML, highlighting diagnostic approaches and challenges with approaching these patients. Hello, my name is uh, Andrew Way from the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne, Australia, and today I have with me uh, Dr. Sanam Loghavi from um, MD Anderson Cancer Center, and she gave uh, a really interesting talk today on uh, p53 and AML. Uh, Sanam, did you want to tell us more about what you discussed today?
1: Sure, um, very good to be here and happy to discuss this this perplexing topic. Um, you know, we spoke about the um, the significance of TP53 mutations in in AML and uh, specifically with regard to classification and prognostication. Uh, As you you know, the presence of TP53 mutations in AML right now at least in the ICC and ELN classifications is a disease defining event. Uh, and so, you know, we know from therapies uh, that we have currently available that these cl- this class of disease is incredibly difficult to treat. Uh, and there are a lot of subtleties and nuances in, in the way we identify TP53 mutations and characterize TP53 mutations and loss that could potentially impact uh, prognostication. And I think we'll, we're still trying to learn uh, what is really the best way. Uh, of prognosticating and maybe pulling out the, the subset of disease that is not necessarily as bad uh, as the other ones. Um, you know, there are studies that show that, you know, obviously having a complex karyotype uh, in addition to a TP53 mutation that leads to loss of both uh, copies of TP53 is, just excessively uh, detrimental. Uh, but I think, again, there's a lot of information that we're starting to acquire as we're looking more into the details, including variant allele frequency, the allelic state, other chromosomal abnormalities, chromothripsis, telomere length. So the, these are things that I think we should be considering in our future studies when we try and prognosticate, you know, develop prognostication models for these patients.
0: Thanks, Nam. And Sanam, can you tell us? Um, a bit about um, this concept of double hit p53 um, in practice um how, how do we define that
1: right so you know this is this is very interesting because I think if you think about this logically, it makes perfect sense that loss of both copies of TP53 would be much much more detrimental because you know maybe going back to high school or college biology, TP53 is a tumor suppressor. When you think about malignancies, typically uh, the way uh, tumor suppressors uh, you know invoke malignancy or you know are involved in the pathogenesis is you usually have. Loss of both functional copies. Whereas oncogenes, like, let's say, for example, MYC, you can have one activated copy of MYC and, you know, it'll do the magic. It'll do the job. But for TP53, uh, you know, for the longest time, we were just looking at TP53 mutations, the presence or absence of TP53 mutations and myeloid malignancies, until the landmark study that was published by Elsa Bernard and Ellie Papamanuel in 2021, I believe. Uh, where they showed that in myelodysplastic syndrome, uh, patients that had biallelic loss of TP53, and I'll explain that in detail, were the ones that had very poor outcome. And at least in their study, patients that had just one mutation did almost similarly in terms of you know outcome and disease behavior to patients that had wild-type TP53. And so, how do we define that in practice? You know, I'm a hematopathologist. How do I define a biallelic loss of TP53? There's really three uh, major scenarios. One is if you have uh, two or more mutations, uh, and again, realizing that you know the way we detect mutations right now is by bulk NGS, so we're really not looking at individual alleles or clones. But again, by way of biology, we are imparting that when there's two mutations, they're probably in two alleles. Uh, the other way is if you have mutation of one copy, and deletion of the wild type copy so that all you're left with is the dysfunctional mutated copy. Uh, and then the third scenario, which is a little bit more tricky, and you know some labs don't actually do this routinely in practice, is if you have a mutation and copy neutral loss of heterozygosity. Uh, and what that means is that the wild type allele is deleted and the mutant allele is actually duplicated. So if you fish for TP53, you're going to see that there's two copies. You're not going to see a loss of uh, TP53 but functionally you don't have a wild type TP53 copy anymore. So that is also um, you know, the third scenario. And again, because I said we don't look for that uh, in you know, practice, at least many labs don't, we use the variant allele frequency as a surrogate uh, to imply that there's copy neutral loss of heterozygosity. And you know, a 50% variant allele frequency cut off more or less Seems to correlate with copy-neutral loss of heterozygosity. So, you, if you have a mutation with a variant allele frequency of more than 50%, you can assume that there's probably copy-neutral loss of heterozygosity.
0: And you mentioned that uh, p53 mutation is a really important and poor-risk entity, uh, but that it can also overlap with other, um, you know, commonly occurring mutations in AML, and so. If we have a patient with a P53 mutation and in, say an NPM1 mutation, God forbid doesn't happen very often, um, how, do we, you know, how do we designate that patient? Is that patient favourable or unfavourable?
1: Right. So you know, I think this is still you know, as you said, fortunately this does not happen very common. But again, because it doesn't happen very common, I think our information is really limited uh, in this in this scenario. But the way the risk stratification risk stratification systems are designed now, at least ELN twenty twenty-two, if you have an NPM one mutation, uh, Without a FLT3-ITD, obviously, uh, that disease is considered favorable risk. Now, if you have an NPM1 mutation with an adverse risk cytogenetics, the adverse risk cytogenetics trump NPM1, and that patient is considered to have adverse risk disease. And we know that the majority of TP53-mutated AMLs, at least for the most part, tend to have complex karyotypes. So those would be considered high risk disease. But in terms of designation of the, you know, your top line on the report, that is still by ICC and by WHO fifth edition, that is still considered an NPM1 mutated AML because NPM1 is a class defining uh, alteration that is above TP53 in classification. Uh, conversely, I think, are the myelodysplasia-related mutations, where if they occur with NPM1, at least in our current stratification uh, risk stratification systems, they do not alter the, the risk of disease. So if you have an NPM1 mutation together with an SRSF2 mutation, without a FLT3 ITD, that patient is still considered favorable risk.
0: And briefly, um, when I uh, did my talk today, I was focusing on what are the possible therapeutic uh, options for patients with adverse risk disease, such as P53 mutant AML. And uh, one of the uh, areas that I discussed was the possibility of combining uh, BH3 mimetics targeting BCL2 and uh, MCL1. The difficulty, of course, is that MCL1 is an important uh, pro-survival molecule for critical organs, such as uh, particularly the heart, and that future uh, therapeutic modalities might need to Uh, determine ways to reduce this risk by perhaps directing the MCL1 inhibitor more directly to its target, perhaps by either uh, protac-relevant options or antibody-dependent conjugates uh, that can direct MCL1 inhibitors uh, to leukemic cells. And the second possibility is is, as a new area of potentially leveraging sting agonists, which are currently used in solid cancer circles uh, to activate the immune system, Uh, and uh, utilize, uh, I guess, a a less recognized possibility that activating sting with these agonists can actually drive apoptosis uh, and drive apoptosis in a P53 independent manner, and that by combination with venetoclax, we might have a very effective combination uh, that can perhaps make some inroads into a really uh, difficult disease. So uh, today we've discussed, uh, obviously, uh, the the therapeutic possibilities, but also the diagnostic uh, aspects and the the complex uh, nature of P53. And hopefully all of these together uh, will provide some uh, diagnostic, but also some therapeutic uh, benefits for patients in the future. Thank you for joining us today and we hope you found this uh, session and discussion uh, interesting and educational. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJHmonk and subscribe to VJHmonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next time.